All right. You, you, ready, you ready to like get this thing rolling? Yeah, we probably should. Okay, because I, I want to point out that it is no longer summer. And you know what that means, that, Daniel? That's a good point. What does it mean? There's something different right now. Can you tell what it is? I, I can tell what it is, but our listeners can't because yeah. they can't see us. Exactly. I'm currently wearing a shirt. <laughs> Big step. Have not taken Big off step. my shirt because it's no longer shirtless summer. Yeah. It's over. Uh, it's, it's it's sweater season. I'm not wearing a sweater because it's still a thousand degrees Indeed. outside. But out of respect for the seasons, keeping my shirt on. That sounds good. I mean, as long as we're not moving into like pantsless fall or something, then <laughs> that's great. TBD. Yeah, let's just keep all the clothes on <laughs> for the duration of the podcast and everything will be fine. All right. Sure. <laughs> What's this thing on here about Lightroom? Okay, Lightroom. this is almost a show topic. I'm like wondering if maybe we should roll the intro and then talk about this because I know that we have a lot of stuff on the docket, but I really need to talk about this. And I was going to talk about it to, to you earlier and I was like, I'm just going to save this for the podcast. You want to talk about cameras in the Camera Gear podcast? Yeah, it's more about Lightroom, but yeah. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. So we've talked in past about my photo backup workflow. In depth. Yep. And I don't think it's changed significantly. I don't know how easy it is to link that episode if we need to like point people back to whatever it was, yeah. 48 or 32 that was about... Those are both wrong. Yeah, it was like episode five or something. No, we'll put we'll put we'll put the number of the ep- that episode in the show. Notes. Sure. Okay. So previous episode we talked about my photo backup workflow. I'm currently using Lightroom Classic for my photo editing, and I bought an iPad, and so I'm using the iPad with regular Lightroom. Mm-hmm. And here's what that workflow looks like. I have my I have my photos on my camera. I plug my SD card of my camera into my iPad. I ingest the photos. They sync with Lightroom and then they go into Lightroom's cloud stuff and they take up my little, my 20 gigs of allocated storage. And then I go onto my computer and I copy them from Lightroom cloud to my catalog, which downloads them and puts them into the appropriate folder on my computer. And then I delete that collection so that it's no longer in the cloud. And then I recreate the exact same collection and then I put the photos that I just took out of it back into it because then it will upload the smart previews that don't count against my my Lightroom storage. And so then I can go back onto my iPad later and have all the edits still there and still be able to make further tweaks to those photos if I want to and still see them, but they're no longer in the cloud as full res or just the smart previews. And if I want to export the full res, I have to then do that on my computer. But... I still have full control of my photos because all my photos are on my computer, which is then within my backup workflow where I'm using rsync to the mirror to the server and the server's backing up on backblaze and it's all like within my folder structure. Lucas, all of that sounds terrible. <laughs> and so you tell me you do that every time you edit photos on your iPad? Yes. That's that's too much. Man. It's not that that's much. Way like, too much. It's not that much. So like it's, it's on my iPad and all I'm doing is copying them from one location to the other and then back. But you're like remaking the collection and all that's that. Not, I mean, that's not. It's like just like oh, new, man. and then I name it again. It's 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 less work than it sounds like. But what I'm wondering is, has the time come that I should just go all in on regular Lightroom? And I was thinking about like, what does this look like for me? And just pensively wondering, like, can I be that kind of person? Yeah, I mean, what's stopping you? Okay, there's two things stopping me. One is the location of my master library of like what I consider to be my canonical photo library. Like where is that and where does it live and what is it? And right now that is on my server. There is a directory for pictures or photos, whatever it's called. And like, there's all of my photos and organized by year, by month and what our subject, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And that's it. And Lightroom points at it and Google photos upload points at it and it's backed up and like, you know, to an external drive and a backblaze and it's on the server. And like that, there it is. If I switched to Lightroom, not classic, Lightroom wants to consider my master photo library to be the cloud, to be Adobe's servers. 
I do have the option to like check a box and say, keep a full copy of this locally. And so the interesting idea would be that if I did that, it I could run Lightroom on my server, right, which is a window, it, was a Windows computer in a closet. And basically have it mirror your library And have locally. it always download all the stuff locally, and then there it is. I run the risk of if something screwed up on Adobe's side, it could nuke my photo library because like it's not it's not air gapped or whatever from Adobe. It's like now within the process. Well, but you could solve on the server thing, you could solve that. Right. So like I will obviously have the external drive that I am pointing to that directory and and saying, you know, uh sync I use like sync toys running every every week basically so it's like on a week interval i have some seven day backup against that directory and then also i have backblaze running which is going to give me like you know here's a 30-day snapshot of that directory as well so like there are those backups and so i'm thinking like maybe that's okay like maybe i can rely on those and then just trust that adobe isn't going to screw me and kill my photo library and then also, I guess I'm, I'm backing those up to Google Photos as well, but I'm not packing up the RAWs to Google Photos. I'm only doing the JPEGs, and that's because I just want to be able to like see them anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you you have to put your trust in something at some point. Like when you when you have your local photo library, you're putting your trust in your own computer to not break, and that is also a form of trust, right? Like trusting Adobe to not nuke your library requires one form of trust, and trusting your own computer is another form of trust. So okay. Okay. the only way around these things is to back stuff up. And you're doing that. Yeah. Okay. So like I'm I'm mostly sold on like this this could work. Maybe this is what I need to do. It would then open up the ability for me to ingest photos on my computer or on my iPad. And then they just go into Lightroom Cloud and then that syncs down to the server and everything is hunky and dory and we're great. Yep. So like maybe maybe that works. And then I don't have to go through this whole R sync process. Yeah. I will have to figure out how to get those into... Okay, so like there's another part of my photo backup workflow where any pictures that I take on my phone are uh, synced or uploaded to OneDrive. And then I will periodically go into that folder on OneDrive and like delete out all the screenshots and the stuff that I don't want to go into my master photo library because I need there needs to be like a checkpoint there. And so I'll check those, delete all the stuff I don't need. And then I will run a... I run an automator script, which is written in Apple script to sort those into a folder structure onto into my photo library. And it'll just automatically like put them over there. And then they get ingested in through that method. So I don't know what I'd do about Lightroom for that. I guess I would have to import them into Lightroom. I guess so. Is there no there's no automatic way to do that, like on the phone app? Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess I could back them up into Lightroom from my phone directly. Yeah. Whoa. Then you could remove another part of your process. That would save me some. That would save me some effort. Okay. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, some tempting ideas here. Right. I think. So here's here's another here's the one other big snag, which maybe not so much of a snag. Times two. One is it's one terabyte. So I did check. I'm at like 630 gigs of photos. So like. This is probably good for you another... You have some breathing room there. Yeah, so like five years probably at most. of. I mean, I've been doing like 20 to 30 gigs of photos a year. Yeah, but you haven't bought that GFX2 yet. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. I have been thinking that maybe I need an XT5. <laughs> Different topic. Yes, Different topic. Yes, sorry, sorry, let's, sorry. Let's put that one off. Yeah, we, like, we, got, we got to get through this, Daniel. We've been talking about Lightroom yep. for an hour. Yep. In Lightroom Normal, you can't stack JPEGs and RAWs. Whereas in Lightroom Classic, you can use the JPEG as the cover for the RAW. And like if I was if I was like a Sony shooter or a Canon shooter or a Panasonic shooter or like a, I don't know, is that all of them? No. Or an Olympus shooter or a, like a Pixie shooter or a Leica shooter. Then I would just shoot RAW and be great. And I could just ingest the RAW photos and be fine. Yeah. But because I shoot Fuji... And there's the film simulations. And Lightroom's copy of the film simulations don't always look exactly like the film simulation. And if you're happy with the one out of camera, it's not worth going through the ed- the effort of editing the RAW because the camera, like the one out of the camera is just going to look better. It's going to have better right. like demosaicing in general. And so I shoot both and I generally keep both, which 
kind of a problem for storage. So like I need to rethink my life in that term as far as deleting the ones that I don't want. And if I decide I want to keep a JPEG, deleting the raw out of my library, which is scary. But I'm like, point is I'm using both. And so I can't like, if you're, if you're like going through and like calling photos and like looking for the bad ones and deleting them out of the library and that sort of thing, you're having to like look at every photo twice. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that life. I would rather look at the JPEG version of the photo. And then if I decide to edit it, edit the raw version, which is what the workflow is in classic. And it's been like three years and they still haven't added the like use the JPEG as the cover for the for the raw photo. And I don't know if it's because they're trying to get people to not save all the JPEGs so they don't like save on server costs for Adobe. Maybe just because like out of pure annoyance or if that's like not going to be a supported workflow method or they just haven't gotten to it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It is kind of strange that they don't have that. I I don't hit that problem because I very rarely edit the raws myself. I just use the JPEGs most yeah. of the time. And then you just like dump the raws. Yeah. Yeah, typically. Yeah, I think I do need to be a little more aggressive about if I'm never going to edit the raw, delete the raw. Yeah, it kind of feels, feels to me like feels you would, wrong. If, but it feels like you would know if they're raws you want to edit or not. Yeah. You know, if you go on your big vacation, then maybe you want to save those. But if it's just random pictures that you take around the house, do you really need to save those? Yeah. And I don't know. Honestly, like generally what I'll do is I have within the year, like 2023, I'll have all of my photos by month, like 01, 02, 03, 04. And then if I do something outside of that, like here is this trip or here was this birthday thing, or like, you know, I'll put like, you know, Pecos, Texas, when I went, when I went to Pecos or something. And then like all the photos for that will be in that folder under that name. And that's mm. usually where my raws live. If I only, if it was like just kind of around the house and I just shot a bunch of pictures, I'll grab the JPEGs and I'll put them in the month folder Yeah, because those sense. are not like official fancy photos. Yeah. Yeah. It, like they're more documentation, I guess. Right. So that makes sense. What do you think, Daniel? Like, should I make the jump and like switch my life over to kinda, Lightroom normal? I kind of think you should. I've been using Lightroom normal for a long time because it just, it simplifies my life, I feel like. And I mean, it's just the newer application. I figure eventually they're going to deprecate classic. And so I was just like, I'm just going to take this on and just use it. And I think it's fine. I mean, the user interface was a little weird to get used to at first, but I can do everything I need to do in it. And for you, I mean, it just seems like it would simplify your workflow so much. Like all that stuff you're doing on the iPad, it feels like a lot of that would be simpler. And I mean, you take a lot of pictures. I can't imagine doing all the stuff you're talking about with like making copies of things and doing all that. I just, I feel like anything you're doing manually like that, you run the risk of forgetting to do it or not doing it in a timely fashion or doing it wrong. And like, those are all risks in your workflow too. It's a very good point. It's... I don't like committing to the cloud for this sort of thing. Cause like, I just, but what uh, do you mean by committing to the cloud? Oh, you know, I just, how, how are you committed to the cloud? I want, cause like basically like me and Adobe have a different philosophy on who owns the master version of my library. Well, but you've got your backup, your local, you're going to run it on your server and get your local backup. So isn't that like, why can't that just be your, your master copy? And that's a good point. It feels like you've you've dealt with that side of the problem. And so, like, you're using Adobe yep. as your conduit to mm -hmm. get stuff to the server. Right. Well, one of the other things is, as part of, like, when I committed fully to Adobe, is, like, I was using it just as, like, I'm going to edit these JPEGs and export the JPEGs. And I don't care about, like, what I'm doing in the RAWs and all that stuff. And I'm, like, getting more and more where I don't want to edit extra, I don't want to export extra JPEGs and have three versions of a photo. And so, I'm just leaving the edits in Lightroom. And then if I ever decide that I want to export the final version of it till I get printed or something. I can do like a TIFF or a JPEG or a ping or something. And I'll export at that time rather than just, you know, mm. having new versions that I'm exporting. It does get a little weird with like now the versions that are in Google Photos are just the JPEG versions and not the edited versions. That's a little strange. But if I go full Lightroom, then I'll just look in Lightroom for my photos. <clears throat> and that will be where like my photo library lives as far as like, oh, I want to show someone a picture. I'll pull up Lightroom instead of Google Photos. Yeah. Oh, man, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it, it? Yeah, it would. Pulling up Lightroom to show someone a photo. I don't know. It's just, it's like a, it's like a philosophy change. It feels like I'm, yeah. I don't know. I'm going, like, I'd be going all in. Mm -hmm. And I have, like, I have started, like, backing up my Lightroom catalog and backing up, like, two, you know, backblaze and all this sort of thing, the actual catalog itself. And that's been working okay. So, I don't know. I just worry about it all. 
<laughs> I can tell. Well, I've given you my opinion, but I guess you're going to have to decide if you're ready mm-hmm. to fully commit to Adobe. I guess so. I can't. I think it gets more expensive, too. I think that if it's like, if you want Lightroom plus Photoshop plus Lightroom Classic, it's 10 bucks a month. That's what I'm paying for right now. But if you want Lightroom regular with a terabyte of storage, it's also 10 bucks a month, but then you don't get Photoshop. Mm, interesting. I don't ever use Photoshop because I'm bad at it and I've never learned it. But I have used it previously for YouTube thumbnails because I don't feel like learning Canva. <laughs> That's a little backwards. <laughs> Canva is so much easier than I, Photoshop. I'm going to tell you what, I can't, I can't figure out Canva. <laughs> I've, tried, I've tried, I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It, I, I don't know what it is. Everyone uses Canva. They're like, oh, it's great. It's so easy. I can't like, I can't even start a document. <laughs> you can use Photoshop, but you can't use Canva. No, I Love can't. It. It's, I don't know. Whatever. So you think you think I should I should do I think it? You should do it. Give up Photoshop. Just use Affinity and Canva. And sure. Like, yeah. Who, I think that, I think who needs just Photoshop? Fine. Yep. <sighs> you know, or you pay the extra ten dollars a month. I mean, that's the other option. I mean, if I got to where I needed it, I just don't feel yeah. like I need it. I literally never use it. It's just I, sometimes I don't even install it on my computer with new installs. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. You say that as if you've uh, installed Photoshop on so many new computers. Okay. There was a period of time in the last year which we have also discussed in this podcast <laughs> in which I had to restore and reinstall my operating system. Good and point. then I, and then I switched computers shortly after that. So there was like Good point. two new installs and then like a, what anyways. And for some of those, I didn't install uh, Photoshop because I was like, who needs it? Yeah. Who needs it? Okay. So you think I should, I should go full Lightroom and just blow up my whole workflow, like yeah. fully commit. We, Lucas, we need content for this podcast. And so, you know, once you've gotten all that, you can walk everybody through your new photo backup workflow. I'm sure they'll all be tuning in for that. It'll be much more simplified. That's true. It'd be like a 10-minute topic instead yeah, okay, of a like, half-hour topic. Well, like par- part of this workflow is there's another person who commits into the photo library. And that person's iPhone also backs up via my OneDrive mm-hmm. to go into the folder so then I can, you know, digest and yeah, whatever. That's, that's extra complexity. Yeah. I don't think that person's going to want to install Lightroom on their computer, no. on their phone. I don't know. I mean, I guess they could. It's just like an app, right? I mean, what's, what's the matter? You have to mm. think about that. If it can just kind of run in the background and do its thing, it seems like it'd be fine. Yeah. <sighs> okay. <laughs> TBD. TBD. Well, should we move on to some other topics? Yeah, I was actually going to leave all that for the pre-show. Yep. It was a lot. It was yes, a lot. That I mean, was a lot. Just, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed right now, but we're going to try and uh, try and push through, find some other things we can cover here. All right. I've been talking for like 45 minutes, but yep. I have one more update for you, uh, kind of on related to some previous shows. Okay. We talked about the new log profiles on the iPhone 15 Pros, mm-hmm. and I was waiting to find out you know, what... What is the deal with this log? Right. And it is Rec 2020 for the gamut. And then there's an Apple log gamma curve. And that is already in DaVinci Resolve. In 18.6 beta. In 18.6 beta. So if you're looking for the gamma curve, it's going to be in Resolve. I assume that also means it's going to be... I'd be shocked if it wasn't already in Final Cut. It is. And then uh, I don't know where Premiere is, but I'm sure they're they're Mm going to have that very, very soon. Yeah. And Apple also has a lot for it. Great. And so there's a lot. Yeah. Perfect. And so I was just wondering, like, what's the color space? Because, like, S-Log3 Gamma Cine is wider than Rec 2020. Mm-hmm. And so, like, different cameras and et cetera are just, you know, bigger gamuts. Rec 2020 is basically what Fuji uses. Pretty common color space. It's also the same color space for their HLG. So it sounds like they're probably just shooting in similar to HLG, but then, like, fitting it into a log for the gamma instead of fitting it into a HLG-style gamma for yeah. HDR. Yep. There you go. Yeah. And it looks like it's pretty good so far. I mean, people have gotten the phones and been testing with them, and it seems like it doesn't do a lot of the over-sharpening and extreme noise reduction and HDR color stuff that you normally see from phone cameras. And I mean, the footage looks really good. Yeah, it does. That's that's what always annoys me about the iPhone footage stuff is like, it's trying to do all of its crazy computational things, like even out exposures and whatever, and do all of its HDR. And I'm like, I want all that data, but like, just like stick it in a law of curve, give me all the info, do a 10 bit, and then like, let me grade it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's exactly what they did. Yeah, I've seen a number of interesting videos of people who've like taken a camera, they've taken the log footage, shot both in the log, and then they went through and they did all the color matching. And because of color space transforms and 
all the info that's in that log profile, you can match pretty, yep. pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a little worried that it was going to be like normal iPhone footage, but just desaturated, you know, like like right. it was kind of like fake log, but it, it, does, it seems like it is actually doing different things with the camera yeah. and seems a lot better. Yep. So I just, I hope that we don't get a lot of, like, I worry about people bringing the log profile into the, whatever software they're using and then just like dragging around their contrast sliders oh, and like doing whatever. Happen. And like, you have like you have to transform it. It's in a different color space. Like you can you can do that and like make it look a certain way, but like that's not really the right there way to do go, it. There are going to be people posting the uncorrected log files. Oh my gosh! And saying it's cinematic. I just I'm gonna need TikTok to catch up here and like show people how to do color space <laughs> transforms ASAP. <laughs> but in the meantime, like I've seen an FX30 comparison where they try to match, and then I think Manny Hapoya did a airy one mm-hmm. and so and then i guess i was uh, patrick tomaso for the for the fx30 but yep. basically on point it's as look, far as color matching so yeah. it makes me want a 15 pro even more yeah. and i'm super pumped to see the footage out of your new phone yeah yeah i got mine recently so i'll have to film something with it and see how it looks yep excited to excited to try to mess with that and match it to the fuji one other note on that is that if you use the apple camera app you have to record in ProRes okay. and not even ProRes LT, just like ProRes. So the files are huge. Sure. Uh, but if you use the Blackmagic camera app that also was recently announced, that gives you a lot more options. And so you can actually record with log in like HEVC. So okay. if you want- 420 H- or 422? Uh, I think it's 422. I'll have to look okay. and see. But you also have like ProRes LT, ProRes Proxy, all these other options. So- I think the Blackmagic app is probably going to be the way to go for most people because you can get those, like, you can still get the log, but you're not shooting in these massive ProRes files. Yeah, and then the other cool thing about the Blackmagic app is you can record, I think, in ProRes Proxy and full ProRes and have the ProRes Proxy upload to Blackmagic Cloud. I think that's right, yeah. So, that's cool, too. Yeah, definitely. So, neat stuff all around. All right. Definitely excited for those new iPhones. All good. Okay, so that was a quick update there. I just touched on the log. Let's talk about some actual gear, Daniel. All right. What do we got? I think, what was it? IBC was was like last week or something. Yep. That is a type of root beer, and it's also a, some sort of camera conference. It's also a building code. Indeed. Yep. All of those things. But we're, shockingly, to everyone listening to this, we're talking about the camera conference. Oh, weird. Yeah. Surprising. Okay. Are you familiar with the Ninja 5? Um, I, I would say I'm uncomfortably familiar with the Ninja 5. I had some had some ups and downs with that thing. I think we also had an episode on the Ninja 5. I'm pretty sure we did. I think one of the first episodes of this podcast. This this is just going to be your recap podcast. Go look at the backlog. <laughs> anyway, there's a new Ninja in town. And I was like, holy cow. Because I feel like the, as far as any product I've ever owned, the Ninja 5 is the most updated product. And that like it released some number of years ago. And it's like update, update, update. And now it can shoot, I can shoot in like 6.2K 6. raw or whatever. And like, you couldn't do that whenever it released. I never really thought about that, I guess, because I, you know, I didn't really follow this stuff that closely until I got one. And so I kind of just assumed they had been coming out with these things all this time. I didn't really realize that the Ninja 5 came out in like 2018. Yeah. I was actually going to quiz you and find out if you knew. Yeah. yeah Turns I, out, you I, know. Well, I read about it today and it's just... Crazy and, and yeah, they've they, like every time a new camera comes out, they're releasing new firmware and all that. And I mean that that's good to see. I'm glad they updated it as much as they have. But they released the Ninja Five Plus, I think, a year or a year and a half ago to mm-hmm. add, like add more features and ability. And then they just push the firmware updates to the Ninja Five regular <laughs> and don't even have a reason to buy the Ninja Five Plus. <laughs> I think there's like one thing it can do that you can't do in it's the regular. Probably related to like camera to cloud or yeah, something. something, like that. Or something. Our favorite feature. Yeah. So it's like. The Ninja 5 and Ninja 5 Plus have been fantastic. Yes. They're long in the tooth. So Ninja, is not Ninja, Atomos is replacing them. I don't know if they're going to still sell the Ninja 5. It feels like maybe they should just stop making it and replace it It feels fully. like these new things kind of supplant it. It sure does. But even still, like, I assume that, like, we're not going to get as many updates now for the Ninja 5. It's probably done. Yeah. And I hope so. Like, that thing has lived its fair, life. Fair it's play. Fantastic. Yeah probably going to find some good deals on it. Yeah, it's true. still really good. Anyway, and they were going now with the Ninja, which they haven't used the just straight up Ninja name since like 2010. Mm-hmm. And then the Ninja Ultra. Yeah, which sounds super cool, right? Ninja Ultra. Mm-hmm. Real cool. 
Okay. Updates for these guys. Okay, here, here's like headline features. Okay. You can do 8K 30P. You can do 4K 120. So those are pretty big updates. The previous ninjas, mm-hmm. I think, capped out at 4K 30 or like 6K 30, basically. Yeah, something like that. So you can really do the high frame rate stuff. Now you can get up to 120 frames per second in 4K, and that's shooting in like ProRes RAW, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Uh, I think the, isn't the, isn't okay. it just 4K 60 for RAW? Sorry, you're right. It's yeah. 4K 60 for RAW and 8K 30 for RAW, and that's only in the Ultra. Yeah, yeah. But I guess with non, non-RAW, non you can do 4K 120, right. 8K 30. And that's ProRes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you could also do like HEVC 422 10-bit. And they're not going to price lock you out of the HEVC anymore. You can just, it just comes with mm-hmm. it. Because the one that you and I, the Ninja 5 that you and I have, we had to buy like a $100 upgrade to get H.265. Yeah. And we both found that to be worth it for like really long projects. Right. That that kind of, I mean, it basically reduces the effective cost of these mm-hmm. by $100. Yeah. And so I think that they are actually more expensive. So the Ninja Ninja straight up is 800 and the Ninja Ultra is, I did that backwards, the Ninja Ultra is 800 mm-hmm. and the Ninja is 600. Yeah, I, I mean, that's in the ballpark because I think when we got ours, I mean, the the new price was somewhere between five and $600. Right. And, you know, it's it always kind of hard to tell because there's sales and stuff on these things, but it's in the ballpark of the old one. Like if you if you count the new one as being $600, but it comes at that $100 uh, HEVC, that's basically a $500 cost. That's about the same price as right. the old one. Yeah, so basically the same price. So a lot of interest, like, you know, those are all interesting new features. Beyond that, it seems like it's basically the same thing. It really does. Like, it's yeah. it's literally the same physical size and port layout because mm-hmm. they are like, you can use all of your Ninja 5 accessories Which is honestly, with a, this. that's a plus. You know, if you yeah. have a cage or something or a case or anything like that. Sure, that's a win. The screen, I think, is the same. It's yeah, like, it seems like it. Yeah, it's that, whatever it was, like five... 5.2 inch 1080p mm-hmm. like thousand nit i thought the other one was like 500 nits i don't know but the new one's a thousand nits but still it's like it's the same screen mm-hmm. it's the same resolution it's like even if you're shooting in 8k you're looking at it in 1080p <laughs> yeah it's a little which bit is always like annoying like it'd be nice yeah. if it was like a 2k screen or something but you know same drives same npf battery plates or power plates it's like it's literally an inch of five but with better specs and probably like yeah. better processing and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, one thing they improved in this one is it comes with some new version of the Atom OS, which is, you know, like the, the right. software basically. And that's kind of, I, I know one thing they said it had is false color, which is a good improvement. And I think to me, the software is one of the most interesting things about this because I've always felt like, you know, the Ninja has these great capabilities of being able to record stuff in ProRes using SSDs. I mean, th- there's reasons to use a Ninja, but it just hasn't been as good as a monitor as right. using a dedicated monitor. And I always found the software to be harder to use, more confusing. It didn't have a lot of the same assist features as what you'd get on like a much cheaper monitor. That always felt really weird to me. So I'm curious if they've improved any of that with this version. It's hard to say. I can't imagine it's a drastic improvement. Yeah. And I don't know if whatever Atomos 11 is coming to any of the previous, but and I think like people were working around the false color thing with LUTs anyway. Mm-hmm. I hope that it's a better monitor, but yeah, I would just I would just assume not. I think that the like the layout and the use of these monitors has been pretty static for a mm-hmm. while. Yeah, I mean, because I think the the take that we had last time we talked about the Ninja was you know if you want a monitor, the Ninja is not as good as a monitor. Like you, you need to be justifying having it by using the ProRes recording or using the raw recording or something like that. And so, I don't know. I, I'd like to see them close that gap a little bit. Yeah, me too. It, it would be nice to see it as equally as good as a monitor and a recorder. But like, obviously, what you're going to buy a Ninja for is recording. Whether yeah. or not you're pulling footage off a, of a video game console or you're recording raw off of your camera or whatever, it's to yep. extend the performance yep. of your system. I would love to see Atomos support be raw, but I can't imagine Blackmagic ever getting them licenses for that because they want to sell their external recorders. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, kind of kind of a bummer, but... It is a bummer. Know. The Blackmagic ones are expensive, too. I looked at them to see how much they are, and they start like 800 bucks. So Yeah, that's, it's, it is much higher. Yeah. And so, like, it's cool that you can shoot ProRes raw, but, like, ever since we made the switch to DaVinci Resolve, it's like, 
I don't know what I'm going to do with ProRes Raw now yeah. because I'm going to have to yeah. process that separately and then bring it in, and I just don't want to have yep. to deal with that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I can still see the value in shooting regular ProRes. Yeah, if I definitely. just want like, you know, let me throw this one terabyte SSD in here and I can shoot ProRes all day. That's that's nice. But yeah, it's it's a bummer that we can't use B-Raw. Yep. And then they also released new Shoguns, which I haven't really looked up because I'm like, I don't really care much about Shoguns. But I think it's like SDI, brighter monitor, larger monitor. They're like seven inches, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But I think it's basically pretty comparable to what they had before. And then with these new specs. So you can do like the 4K60 and the 8K30 and then if you're not doing raw, you can do 4K 120 and that sort of cool. thing. Well, good to see updates here. Yeah, so seem, seem reasonably priced and all that. Yeah, so, so fi- finally we got we got you know much needed updates to to these monitors, even though yep. you know Atomos has been keeping them software updated pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Cool. So since we've been talking about products from 2018, should we talk about uh, Micro Four Thirds? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I've been I've been pondering this camera. So on the same day that we we talked about the iPhone and we talked about the uh, GFX one hundred the second mm-hmm. and what else? Came, this was the other thing that came out that so day. The, the, yeah. So the other thing that came out that day was the Sony Burano. That's and right. And the Black Magic event was like two days after this. Right. And all of that stuff uh, ranked higher on our list than this one. But it this sure was also did. announced on that same Tuesday. Yep. So we're looking at the Panasonic G nine Mark two. I think when did the original G9 come out? That was like four years ago or something. That sounds about right. Yeah, because I, when I was looking at buying my GH5 and maybe even when I bought the GX85, which was 2018, I feel like they had like the G85 and the G9 came later. So yeah, yeah somewhere somewhere around like 2019 or so probably. So as far as Panasonic's m- Micro Four Thirds lineup, the G9 and the GH whatever sorry the the g and the gh have essentially been TikTok to each other one's the photo camera one is the video camera right and they've had the gx version which was the rangefinder version of the photo camera yes and so it was just like g7 g8 g9 gh4 gh5 gh6 and now it's g9 mark who I don't like. Why didn't we go to G10? Do they run out of letters? Yeah. They can't do two letters. Or do they feel like it wasn't a big enough improvement over the G9? I who knows. Yeah. I mean, everything has improved. This is the body of an S5 Mark II, like literally an S5 Mark II, but with a Micro Four Third sensor, and then they sealed up all of the holes so that it would be weather resistant and mm-hmm. freeze resistant. Yeah. I did not realize it was the exact same body. It, it's literally the same camera. Interesting. Like you can use the accessories and all that wow. sort of thing. Okay. So, I don't remember if the S5 Mark II has like a wheel and a joystick on the back, but this one does have like all of the features yeah, as far as touchscreen, joystick, and wheel. So I don't know about that, but cool. Walk walk me through some of the other specs. Okay, it's thing. it's a new it's a totally new sensor, twenty five point two megapixels, micro four thirds, micro four thirds, right? Mm-hmm. So it's up from twenty megapixels. Okay. I can't think of a higher megapixel Micro Four Thirds. I think the Olympus OMD one, sorry, the OM system, OM one D, maybe a slightly higher megapixel. Probably should double check that. But basically, like you know, Micro Four Thirds, it has really, really good IBIS. Like it's a new system with a new gyro, whatever. And they're saying like seven or eight stops mm-hmm. of. I saw. I think eight stops. Yeah, yeah. which is pretty stinking good. Yeah, like I mean, the S five Mark II had good stabilization. This is supposed to have even better well, stabilization. The, the GH5 was always like the king of IBIS because this Micro Four Thirds sensor is so small. It, it's really mm-hmm. easy to do that. And this seems like it has better IBIS than the GH5. Yep. And really so it's like, time. this is a, it's a photo camera. And so like, what does that get you? And what that is, is like, if you're shooting on, say like a 400 millimeter Micro Four Third lens, which full frame equivalent, that's 800 millimeters. It's crazy. <laughs> you can shoot that handheld and still get crisp shots that's crazy and like if you maybe feel like you use a tripod or like you maybe like brace the camera a little more you can shoot there these 100 megapixel still images at that length handheld that's and crazy it's, cr- it's crazy yeah that's cool mm-hmm. i mean i may be exaggerating you might not be able to do the 100 megapixels at that length but like if you put it on a tripod, you can. And what I'm talking about is like they will do this whole sensor shift thing where they'll yeah, use that, that, in a lot of that IBIS now. to like move the sensor around and then take a higher, higher resolution. Yeah. Yeah. And so like you can get a hundred megapixels out of a camera that is 
fairly, I wouldn't say fairly small. It's the size of an S5 Mark II. So mm-hmm. it's not a small camera by any means. Yeah. But it's it's competitive in that, like, if you're comparing it to, like, an A7R5, which I think is the right comparison, is, like, compare these to a full-frame, high-resolution camera. Yeah. Like, is you can basically get equivalent equivalent sure. resolution out of it if you don't have moving subjects. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big caveat, right? Like, you, you've got to have a static sub- subject for that. Yeah. And so, like, this thing is $1,900, right? Pretty high. Which is... You know, it's you're in the price territory of like an XH2, which is 40 megapixels. You're looking at the directly at the S5 Mark II, which is full frame. Mm-hmm. Like Canon has things that are full frame and APS-C that are cheaper and like slightly more expensive. I mean, twenty five hundred dollars is going to get you an R6. Like the A7C2 is twenty two hundred dollars, yeah. right? That's thirty megapixels. So like, it's right here in this competitive landscape. And but what I think is interesting to consider is what I just said of actually compare this to the R5. And compare this to the A7R5. Yeah. Because if you grab a 400 millimeter full frame lens and then shoot with it and then crop into the center to get a 100% crop to 800 millimeters, that's basically the same thing as shooting with a G9 II. That's really interesting. Because you're getting like a 26-ish megapixel shot at 800 millimeters. Good point. But the G9 II is going to take a better picture because it has better stabilization and it's and then you could even do like your sensor shift thing. Yeah. So like if you're in that super telephoto situation, this is like here's your small light, very professional kit for shooting super telephoto. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I didn't consider that with the micro four thirds crop, but that's a good point. You gotta you gotta lean into your your bennies there. Like yeah. what are you getting out of that crop? Well, and the other, the other thing you get with the micro four thirds sensor is just how fast it is, right? Because this thing with electronic shutter can do sixty frames per second burst, or if you fix the focus, like that's with autofocus. If you fix the focus, you can do seventy five frames per second. That it's is crazy. Crazy. Yeah, sixty frame per second raw images. Yeah. is absolutely nuts. Yeah, it's like a two hundred uh two hundred image buffer or something like that. But I mean, that's you know, if you imagine like go out and shoot wildlife. Like you could get some pretty cool shots with your 400 millimeter lens and shooting a, you know, 60 frame per second burst. And it'll do, it'll do the buffer. I think you can set it up to like one second, which is essentially six images. Yeah. Sorry, 60 images. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Which great. Right. So it's like, I mean, this is, this is like, here's your sports, here's your telephoto, here is your action type, you Mm -hmm. know, photography where you need the reach. You don't want to carry around the biggest lens in the entire world and you can shoot freaking 60 frames per second. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, take advantage. Like, what do you, why shoot micro four thirds? Like, what's the whole point of <laughs> like using such a small sensor? Like, you're losing dynamic range and all this sort of thing. It's like, here's the stabilization, here's the super fast readout, and here's all this extra reach. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. You know, it's for me, it's hard to imagine wanting to use micro four thirds just because, yeah, I feel like you're, you're constantly fighting that sensor and fighting to get enough light. But if you are in a situation where you have enough light, like you said, I think it does have some advantages. Yeah, definitely. Like they're they're doing things like if you can read the sensor faster, you can pull like more dynamic range out of that. We see it with cinema cinema cameras all the time where the super thirty five cameras get more dynamic range than the full frame cameras. Right. They're gonna be more noisy and low light, but they're gonna have better dynamic range. Right. And like they're trying to do that here, but I don't think I think they're like there's a diminishing returns the smaller you go. But we are seeing where, like, if you're shooting less than, like, 30, I think it was, like, 3,200 ISO, it will automatically do the DR boost, which is something that the GH6 had that you had to, like, specifically turn on. And I think the way that worked was, like, it's basically pulling two gains off of the sensor and then combining it into a single image. Yeah, it's something like that. And it seemed like it actually did work pretty well in the GH6. Yeah, like, it, it bumps you up. And so I think that, like, with the G9 Mark II, when you have dynamic range boost on, which is just it just automatically turns on below, like, 3200 ISO, you're going to get 14, 15 stops of dynamic range potential out of the sensor. Whereas when it's off, you get, like, 13. Mm. And so it kind of starts to be able to compete with APS-C in full frame as far as dynamic range in well-lit situations. yeah. yeah. That's definitely interesting. Yeah. And even though it's a photo camera, the video specs are really not bad. No, they're not. It's it's fairly comparable to the GH6. Yeah. Like a lot of people like are weirdly saying. weirdly so. Like why buy a GH6? Mm-hmm. It does feel like there are some things that are kind of missing 
from the G, like some of the more advanced features that you have in the GX, GH6, but it's basically basically the same. Yeah, so it looks like you're getting uh, 5.8K video, 420, uh, 10-bit, right. and that's using the full sensor uh, yeah. or 4K120. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's open gate. You can shoot 5.8K open yeah. gate, and that's a 4x3 sensor, and so you can do the, auto, the anamorphic modes and get actual 4x3 anamorphic. Nice. And then from 4x3, and you know, I think if you shoot in like 4K, like 4K 30, 4K 24, you can get 422 10-bit. Cool. And so, you know, it's it basically has all of those modes mm-hmm. that you would expect out of like an S5 Mark II. Yeah. Yeah, you can record ProRes. Mm-hmm. You can record to a SSD. Right. Things the XH2 or the XH2S still can't do that, but yep, you can yep. do that on this photo camera. Yeah, sure can. I think that it limits you in some way. Like if you want to record certain frame rates, you have to record to the SSD because the cards aren't fast enough. Sure. And it's fair. And it's V you can do V60 card UHS2 in this thing. So it's two SD card slots, no CF Express. Mm-hmm. But if you need the faster readout speed, you have the S- the external recording I mean, option I, to an SSD. I think that's fine. This is clearly meant more as a photo camera. And if you're trying to really push the video specs, I think having to clamp an SSD on there is not, uh, that's not too much of a compromise. I would basically agree with that. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's an interesting camera. I, I have so much trouble with like, with micro four thirds in general, as far as like, where does it fit? Yeah. I can like, I can see the reason to compromise from full frame to APS-C it's like 1.5 crop. Like it's it's not that much worse. You maybe lose like one stop on dynamic range, but you can still get some low depth of field. And but you can get all of these extra benefits out of the speed. And then it's like the same thing happens from APS-C to four thirds. But I just I'm never really sold on it anymore. Yeah. Like I guess I don't really need that reach. And I mean, this is kind of one of the coolest micro weather cameras we've seen in a while. The Olympus one was the other one, or sorry, OM system. But it's like, it's still $2,000. The camera body is still the same size. And so really, you're only saving on weight is the lenses. But the lenses, if you get the good ones, are crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. And they're not really being updated. Like, if you look at all the new lenses that Lumix has come out with, they're basically all full frame. Yeah. And so it's like, the micro fourth system micro four third system feels like it's aging i agree and i just i can't tell if panasonic is releasing this camera because they still believe in micro four thirds or if they're releasing this camera because they know that there are still people in that system and they just kind of want to keep it going yeah i i also have that question i mean i was like like many people i think i was really disappointed that this event was a new micro four thirds camera and not them announcing s1h mark ii and yeah, it kind of kind of makes you wonder, you know, why are they still investing in Micro Four Thirds? And I think they talked a pretty big game at that event, saying that they still care about it and it's still important to them and all that. But you know, it's always hard to separate that marketing stuff from reality. Mm-hmm. And, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it it felt to me before that, you know, it's like Micro Four Thirds is cheaper and smaller than you know APS-C or full frame, and it's still going to shoot way better than your phone. But now it feels like. You know, it's really you're really not saving that much money or size if this is the same size as an uh, as an S5 Mark II, and it's a nineteen hundred dollar camera, and it's like you've got this APS-C and full frame stuff competing at lower price points now, and then you've got things like the iPhone 15 that are you know really improving phone photography, kind of coming up from below, and it just kind of feels like it's squeezing Micro Four Thirds, and I don't know how much room there is for that anymore. Yeah, I, I kind of agree as well. It it almost feels like this G9 two was, like, we have the GH6, and so, like, let's just repackage it for as a photo camera, and because we have to roll out face detect autofocus to everything in the lineup now mm-hmm. that that's a thing. And so, like, that was the headline feature here, right? It's like, here's our main photo camera that you love, but now it has face detect. Right. And But, like, they can't, they're not going to go back and, like, re, re you know, invigorate the G9. So, like, let's use the existing body that we have, stick the guts from the GH6 into it, add face detect, and like maybe this is actually, actually is the simplest camera that they yeah. could release. It, it is like, I feel like the fact that they use that S5 Mark II body, it kind of like overplays their hand a little bit where sure. they, they clearly didn't want to overinvest in creating this, you know? Yeah, like, they didn't want to have to retool the, the whole thing. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it makes sense. The S, I've held an S5 Mark II and that is a great camera design. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a great design. It's just, you know, it is, it does feel like it's a bulky thing for a micro four thirds camera. Well, absolutely. Right. I mean, I used to shoot micro four thirds and one of the main reasons I bought into it was like, it was so small. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that GX seven that I had is, I mean, it's, it's tiny. It's yeah. It's almost like, small, like smaller than X, an X100V. Yeah. So it's about X100V size. Yeah. Super compact, and like you throw a twenty millimeter pancake on there, and that's a that's a wonderful little kit, mm-hmm. and you know you get great photos out of it. And like this isn't that. I mean, this is definitely like they're selling this as like here's a professional grade whatever. And I do feel like this is within certain very specific workflows, competitive with. I mean, like maybe even a Z8, like. You're gonna go shoot us like a, a soccer match or something, right. or a football match. Like you got the range, it's lighter, you have better stabilization. Like you're not quite, you know, with with the crop, it's gonna be basically the same resolution. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there are use cases for it, but it's just feeling like more and more niche. Agreed, agreed. And I think that most people would probably give up the weight savings of the lens. And then get a larger sensor because it opens them up to be able to do more things. Yeah. They have the option to get low depth of field or really wide shots. And like you're going to have better, like moray, what's the word for it? Like the moray is going to be less worse on a bigger sensor where those pixels are, right. are larger and yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, that's always a micro four third problem and always a small sensor problem. A company like Fuji gets around <laughs> it. Because of X-Trans. You may have heard of it. I'm not going there today, Lucas. I'm not going there. <laughs> what what concerns me about this camera is I don't know who I would recommend it for. I mean, for the same price, you can get an S- S5 Mark II. Yeah, yeah. Why am I not picking that? You know, it's like, I don't know. That's, that. It's And like, if they're if they want a really light system, get the OM, OM, is it the OM1? I, I swear, like. You're going to have to look that camera I'm so up. outside of this micro four third world. I can't even remember <laughs> the name of that stinking camera. OM Systems. Oh, I think it's the OM1. I mean, honestly, I'm just thinking, why would I pick this over like a Fuji XS20? You know, like or or, or a Sony uh, or an XH2, a Sony A6700. I mean, there's just so many other cameras that have bigger sensors, a lot more, uh, you know, modern lens options. Just Man, doesn't make you're, sense. You're picking two cheaper cameras. I mean, this you're like this is like R7 territory. Yeah. yeah. I mean, XH2, like yeah, XT5. I mean, all XT5, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. XC5 is a smaller camera yeah. with a higher resolution sensor. They get some more dynamic range. The new ZF, which we haven't even talked about yeah, that one yet. Yeah, we're going to I mean, gonna that, have to put that one on next week's show, I think. That one's smaller, uh-huh. looks cooler, yep. and is full frame. And anyways, Daniel, that camera is pretty stinking cool. <laughs> Getting off topic here. Right. I think th- I think that the OM camera, it's the OM1, is... It's like slightly smaller and it does similar stuff. Like you can do an 80 megapixel giant thing. It has really good stabilization, like very competitive to this. But I think that like maybe if you're looking for a smaller system, OM1 yeah. might be a better option. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. I just, yeah, this is this is coming in at a really weird price point for what it is. I mean, it is cheaper. OM1 is $2,000 and this one's $1,900. So I don't know. If you're in that high, high end micro four thirds world, <laughs> This is, there's two cameras and it's this one and it's the OM-1. And I think like now that this has face detect, you get way cooler video features because it's a Panasonic. And like these burst rates are unmatched. Yeah, that that, that they are. I don't know. It's weird. It's like, weird. It's, it's hard to talk about it because it's like just, I can, in no way do I ever see myself wanting, needing, buying this camera. <laughs> yeah. And so Same I'm way. like, how would, how would I, how would I sell this? I have, yeah. no, I have no idea. Yeah. I think yeah. it's interesting. I'm glad to see like this, like the cool things that you can do in Micro Four Thirds that aren't possible yet with larger sensors because of processing limitations. It's cool to see developments there as like a proving ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what Micro Four Thirds has been for a long time as a proving ground. Because mm-hmm. I mean, like as an example, for a long time, IBIS was so much more effective on Micro Four Thirds. And now, you know, we're starting to see that be better. I mean, like the S5 and the S1H are, you know, have way better ibis for being full frame than what we've previously seen i I do feel like panasonic takes some of those learnings from micro four thirds and applies it to the rest of the lineup right it does seem that that has slowed down in a way 
we haven't seen the dual gain dynamic range thing come into any sort of like full frame or APS-C cameras that I can think of. And so like we're waiting for that to work its way up the line. The better IBIS, I don't even know if you're going to be Halo 2 because of like mo how uh, the capacity of those motors and like just being able to move around the mass of the sensor. Maybe like sensors get lighter or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, sure, it's going to be cool when you can shoot 60 frame per second raw out of like a 40 megapixel full frame sensor. Like that's going to be really, really cool. And maybe at that point, the Panasonic's just going to be shooting like raw out of 120 is <laughs> basically video high, high speed video and raw so i don't know it's it's an interesting camera but it doesn't feel like it's as interesting as it could be yeah like that they're they're split with their resources and they're just they're maybe they're spending all their time developing the uh s1h mark ii yeah i i can hope yeah i, I mean dream. that one that one's gonna be really interesting yeah yeah we'll see i don't think we're gonna see it this year though oh man it's gonna make my list at the end of the year really hard yeah Sure is. So, I mean, did anything else come out with this? Did they release like new lenses or anything? They kind of did. They, there's not much to say here. They announced a new version of the 35 to 100 f 2.8. Cool. Um, you know, they said the word Leica a million times because they really like to, to tout that. Um, but it has improved image quality. So, you know, whatever. Sure. Great. Um, and then they announced uh, an update to the 100 to 400 f uh, 4 to f 6.3. But it only has one new feature, which is that it supports the 2x teleconverter. So that's that's where you're getting like a 1600 millimeter equivalent. Yes. <laughs> Dang. Yes. Yeah. So uh, they there must be something to what you said about that really long reach because you know got that got that going for them yeah, with an effective aperture of 25. I guess. I guess. But. Ooh. Yeah. That's cool, though. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. All right, let's let's talk about one more thing today. Okay. Let's look at these RF Cinema Primes. <gasps> Finally. This is something that came out. This is another topic that came out that same that same Tuesday with everything else. <laughs> and there were just so many things. We couldn't get to all of them. And this is this one I thought was funny because this is like right up the alley of this show. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know, weeks later finally talking about it but there's just been so much news i am more excited about these cineprimes than i am about the g9 mark ii <laughs> oh you don't say i don't even shoot rf <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why i care all right well tell me about them okay they came out with so canon makes some cine lenses and cur- their current lineup is ef and pl mm-hmm. and they're making the c70 and they're making their their C three hundreds and all this stuff. Red uses RF. It's time for them to come out with some Cine primes on their RF. Mount. I mean, yeah, I've been, that's what I've been saying. You know, they've got the R five C. That's a that's an interesting yep, one. Yep. So cheap, mm-hmm. but yeah, they've got a lot of a lot of cinema cameras. So here it is. Here's the suite, and they even updated a couple of their Cine zooms. Which those Cine zooms, Daniel, like they're like APS C range, but they're like T T one point eight. Huh. And I'm like, if I could buy that lens for my Fuji <laughs> and get a T1.8 zoom that's like 20, what is it? It's like 23 millimeter to like 71 millimeter or something. I don't even have it in front of me, but it's like that. But in T1.8, I know it's like crazy expensive. I was like, what? Come on, Fuji. Yeah. <laughs> Where, where's my version of that lens? <laughs> anyway, the primes. Okay. These are all roughly, what is it? They are. 118 millimeters, like physically diameter in the largest point. And they're 118 millimeters long. Okay. All of them. Interesting. They are all 105 millimeter filter thread. So they're, uh, <laughs> first off, that's huge. Yes, it and, is. <laughs> and you kind of have this, the, the classic Cinema Prime thing where they're all right. the same size. They're all the same size. Fantastic. Most of them are about 2.8 pounds. Okay. So the lighter ones are 2.6, the heavier ones are 3.3, but within a half a pound of each other, one way or the other, okay. unless you're going from the lightest to the heaviest, then it's a little closer to one pound. So all very similar sizes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Box checked. Here's yep. a care as a kit. They got you covered for 14, 20, 24, 35, 50, 85, and 135. That's a pretty complete range. That's all of it, man. There's, you got ultra-wide to telephoto. Uh, there's nothing obvious missing from that. Yeah. I can't think of anything. I mean, I 
maybe you could squeeze a 40 mil in there. I mean, but sure, you, could nit, you could nitpick, but I mean, that's a good range. It's fantastic. This is this is exactly the range that I would want. They even added a 20. I mean, if they went from, if they did 16 and 24. Mm-hmm. That would have been fine. No one would have complained. Yep. But they went 14 and 20. Mm-hmm. That's nice. And here's the one complaint. These are not all the same T-stop. Right. The fastest is T1.3. The slowest is T2.2, and that's on the 135. Yeah, isn't the uh, isn't the 14 slow? Oh, right. Sorry. The 14 is a T3.1. Yeah. And that may be because I typoed it, mm. and it's actually 1.3. It could be. I think it's actually that. So the T, I, I, I typed that backwards. Uh, you're basically 1.3 for the fastest. Most of them are 1.3 to 1.5, and then the 135 is T2.2. Yeah, I guess that, that they probably had to fit into that size window. Yeah, there's no way that you're going to make a 135 millimeter lens that size at yeah. at less than T2.2. There's no yeah. way. Yeah. I don't know why they just didn't make them all T1.5. That is a little weird. I yeah. bet what it is is like they did the optical formula, and these probably have very similar f-stops. Mm, and like maybe yeah. they they, pr- they probably used similar designs to their their RF glass that they have uh, have already developed like their L series. I have no I have no proof of this. Like I tried to see if they based these on anything of like here's a previous optical formula that they used. But what I would assume is like here these all have are essentially f 1.8, but or 1.4 somewhere around there. Yeah. And then the T stop is different because that's an actual calculation. Sure. That, that's reasonable. Relative. I think it's a good theory. So, still great. They touted things like 8K support resolution, which absolutely needed in new cine lenses. Sure. Yeah, at this point, we're starting to see that in more cameras. Yep. So, that's that's fantastic. They Obviously, they talked about skin dome because they're Canon. They have 11 blades, and they're saying that because it's an odd number of blades, you're going to get better fall off. And then the bokeh is very round, mm. even at like, you know, the, the widest aperture. Yeah. I haven't seen any footage off of these yet, but I am curious to see how they look, especially compared to those new Cook lenses that just came out that yeah. are similarly priced. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest competitor to these, honestly. They're, they're nearly the same price. The Cook is also full frame, if I recall, right? I think that's right. Yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, because they're for like RF and mm-hmm. L and all that. Like the thing about, like these RF lenses, like supposedly they're really good at ghosting and like they're very very good looking lenses. Yeah. Thing about those cooks, it's like, if you look at the, like, if you're just obsessed with the way that out of focus looks in your images and you look at like the round bokeh balls in your like footage off of a cook lens, they look basically perfect. Like there is no onion ringing. There's Mm -hmm. no soap bubbling. They're just smooth and delicious and like just so good. (laughs) And I'm curious if these RF lenses compete because they kind of talked about like our out of focus is like really good and you have really round bokeh, but am I going to look at that and am I going to see like onion ring yeah. inside of it or is it going to be like just the most creamiest, delicious thing I've ever seen? I mean, they've got some pretty clear competition here, so that they better, right? Like, you know, it's it's got to match up. Uh, I we'll guess see. we'll see. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the gist of it. I did mention that these are, you know, coverage for full frame that I wanted I wanted to re, I was looking through their the information on their website nowhere in any of the press releases or any of the spec documents that I've looked at do they list the image circle of these lenses that's surprising and I was, I was frustrating because I'm like that's a that's a base spec yeah like what is your image circle you're gonna need to know if you can put this on your GFX 100 the deuce well you, you know you can't because <laughs> because it's RF it's a too close to a flange uh, distance right uh, that's fair. To, yeah I did think about that because uh I was looking at red cameras, like the V Raptor, mm-hmm. and they're like, you can. They talked about using those Prima Vista Fuji lenses, yeah, and which have a larger image circle than full frame. They're not quite medium format, but they're not quite. They're like they're not like sixty five mil size, but they're they are significantly bigger than full frame as far as image circle. Anyway, if you go look at a red camera, the sensor size for an eight K V Raptor is like forty. 41 millimeters by 21-ish, 21 and a half millimeters. That's wider than full frame. Interesting. And what what Canon says is that these RF primes are designed for full frame, comma, large format cameras. And I can't tell if they mean full frame, but also that's large format if you're talking about video, but we have to use both terms because people don't understand the difference, or if it's full frame and large format. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because when we're talking about video, large format is anything bigger than Super 35. It is confusing. It is confusing. And so it reads like these are for like 36 millimeter by 24 millimeter coverage. And what I was trying to find out is like, is the image circle big enough to cover an 8K V Raptor with the large format sensor, which is that 40 millimeter width? It feels to me like it would be such a miss if it wasn't. It has to. Because I mean, all, all these red cameras are coming out with RF. This feels like the perfect thing. You're like, now we've got RF Cinema Primes from Canon. Like this is going to pair really well with my red camera. And if it doesn't cover the sensor, that's a problem. I mean, I just, I, I would bet. I would bet quite a bit of money that they that it does cover it because it just doesn't make sense otherwise. Yeah, I th- I would expect that you're right. And I think that's probably what they meant by large format. And they did mention like third-party cameras, like other cinema cameras that use this mount, which is red. Yeah. And so I think that they very specifically were like, these are for red cameras. Use them on your V-Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> Give us money too. Yeah. But then also they have... So like these have the electronics in them. Like they're fully manual primes for cinema stuff. There's no autofocus or nothing. And they have great focus throws. 300 mil, 300 degrees focus throw. Wonderful. They have electronics in them so that if you connect them to a Canon camera, they will do like peripheral illumination correction and like spot correction, mm, edge distortion. And so like if you have that 14 millimeter 1.3, it will do the lens correction for you in camera, even if like you're shooting in raw or whatever, to like your C70. Well, that's a, that's a plus C. over the. It's uh, a plus over the Cook. Yeah, lenses. it is. The Cooks are have no mm-hmm. nothing like that. Advantage of the Cook is it ships with all the mounts in the box, so you can yeah. put it on anything. Yep. I would still buy the Cooks over these. Like, yeah, they're about the same price, right? I think that they're about the same price. They're like man, four, from what I saw, it was like four thousand dollars or something. Yeah, yeah. So. I would still, like, if I was going to invest in these, man, having one that says Cook, especially if you're going to rent the gear, like, if you're, like, I, you have the lenses and you're, like, selling yourself right. and your equipment, and someone was like, oh, man, but I really want to use this camera, you can like, swamp the mounts and use the Cook lenses on basically anything, mm-hmm. versus this, it's like RF, so, yeah, I don't know, but... I'm curious to see if they've worked with red so that if you are shooting on like a Monstro or a V Raptor or something that you can get the lens correction built in. And that would be super, super cool. It would. But yeah. like they didn't say anything to that effect. And I feel like Canon doesn't work with anybody because they're <laughs> Canon. But also like why is red still sticking with the RF mount? And it's like, yeah, I guess you, you can swap out to a PL mount if you're a red camera. You just take it off. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know. Very cool. It is cool. You know, I think that somebody who has a C70 or an R5C or something, these lenses still feel like they're pretty expensive for those cameras because it's like they the sure same do. price as the camera. But I don't know. Maybe we'll see people using these on Canons. Yeah. I think that if you have like a like a Canon like setup, like yeah. you're, you shoot a lot of videos or you have a production company or you're a studio and you got a lot of Canon stuff. Boom, here's your RF Cine glass. Sure. And you can use it with all the Canon cameras that you have around. And like it works great for those kind of setups and like your production house. Or if you're renting them, like it would be a great ad for renting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I haven't talked about the like best feature of these cameras. Which is what? The numbers on the side are white, but in the dark, they glow. That is pretty cool. It is super uh, cool. That's a, that's a clever feature. Yeah. I like it. No, that's it. Need need more glow in the dark stuff on cameras. Uh-huh. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> glow in the dark. Pull your focus. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. It's really into it. Yep. So I think that's it. I think we covered everything on these lenses. I mean, you have any final thoughts on them? Not really. I, I think they make sense. Uh it's coming out at a really interesting time with those Cook uh SP3 lenses just releasing. Yep. I think the Cooks outshine them a little bit. But uh I'm curious to see. I guess I'm curious to see how these are received and what people use them for. Same. I just, I feel like Cook has more clout. Yeah, they do. But I mean, at the same time, I, I always like to see more competition. You know, Defin- so, Definitely. So I think it's good. And I mean, when we, we talked about it, when we talked about the Cook of like, you know, all these filmmakers and stuff kind of growing up in like a mirrorless world or shooting on cheaper cinema cameras that are, you know, here's a camera that's sub $10,000. Like maybe they're shooting on an Ursa or a C70 or something. Mm-hmm. And like 
getting into where they actually need like sets of primes and being able to buy primes that are less than $30,000 for a kit or something, or being able to rent primes where they're not paying an art, like a thousand dollars a weekend or something. Yeah. And so it's like having like cinema grade glass to be able to use for those cheaper productions and like economize film making in this way. It's great to see it. And I felt like Cook kind of pushed that whole concept forward by like, here are really, really, really good cinema primes for $4,000 a piece. Right. And Canon doing the same thing just legitimizes that. And I think it just kind of helps push everybody forward. Yeah, I agree. So I'm into it. Me really too. pumped about it. Yep. I think it's great. Okay. And then I think I moved everything else off of our off of our topic list today. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I think we've almost caught up on all the announcements from that one week in September. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> yeah, we should have to get to everything else that came out after that. Yeah, yeah, we're like, trying, we're trying yeah. to catch up. We haven't talked about we haven't talked about the new GoPro. We haven't talked about the new DJI drone. Yep. Like what? Nikon. Just, uh, oh yeah, ZF. ZFs. They're not FC. Yeah, they're, they're, is, that, is that what it is? Yes, no. the ZF. Yeah. A lot of a lot of stuff. A lot more camera gear ahead. Yep. Just stay stay tuned or yep. whatever. I don't know. Yep. Is that what you say? I think that's what you say. Cool. That's what we're gonna go with. Got it. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com and you can find us on Twitter at Camera Gear Pod. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>